You are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the Gospel of St. Mark. Dr. George has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today covering Mark chapters 10 and 11. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the chapters of the Second Gospel from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. We begin this lesson speaking of Christ's teaching on marriage and divorce. What Christ says about divorce, how far it is outside the plan of God, cannot fully be understood unless we begin by speaking about the blessings and goods of marriage, which God revealed as part of his original plan in the very beginning. If we consider the fact that God is love, man and woman are created out of God's love. We are created out of love, by love, for love, to love. And so there is a way in which marriage is written into creation, is inscribed in humanity, as it were, from the very beginning in God's original plan. John Paul II spoke of how marriage is a primordial sacrament. Primordial meaning from the very beginning, original in God's very plan. And so marriage, as a primordial sacrament, is assumed and integrated into the economy, the sacramental economy, the new dispensation, the new covenant in Christ. And this is what we will be speaking about in the first part of this lesson as we talk about marriage and divorce. St. Mark records at the beginning of chapter 10 that some Pharisees approached Jesus and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He says they were putting him to the test. They didn't ask him this as a simple, straightforward, genuine question. They were putting Christ to the test, which tells us that they knew that there was something amiss with the accommodations in the Mosaic Law, which allowed a writ of divorce to be given. So in other words, the Mosaic Law did permit divorce, but they had this sense that God from the beginning had not willed it so. And they're trapping Christ. They're sort of trying to place the law of God against the law of God because they sense that something is amiss and has been for many centuries. Jesus answered them, What did Moses command you? Now this is an interesting question because on the one hand, they are pointing out to Jesus that Moses allowed men to divorce their wives. In other words, a writ of divorce or dismissal could be given to one. But as the church teaches about this, the law of Moses aimed at protecting the wife from arbitrary domination by the husband, from being used, being treated as an object. And it carried the development of the Mosaic Law carried within it a revelation of the hardness of man's own heart 
in not accepting God's word revealed from the very beginning. If we look at the Mosaic Law from the beginning, you have secondary readings with regard to questions 1a and b. In this regard, we find that there are references in the early books of the Old Testament, Exodus and Deuteronomy, for example, whereby God is very clear that marriage is to be permanent and binding between one man and one woman. The Israelites are told that they cannot covet their neighbor's wife. They are told this in the beginning. The book of Deuteronomy reveals that if a man is caught with another man's wife, in other words, both of them are adulterers, both must be put to death. It so gravely contravened the law of God. Deuteronomy also says that if a man sleeps with a woman before they are married, he must marry her and she will be his wife so long as they live. Again, the permanency, the binding character of nuptial union. The law also condemns a man who divorces his wife. And scripture says that if she then marries another and later leaves that man, the first man cannot take her back because the scripture says she is unclean. She has committed adultery. He cannot re-enter into union. So in other words, when Jesus asks them what the Mosaic Law says, he is going back and taking into consideration the whole of what God revealed from the beginning, what the law clearly said, and then what enters into the law so that the people can deal with the hardness of heart of those who refuse to accept the binding nature of marriage which God has revealed from the beginning. We cannot understand Christ's teaching on divorce without understanding what God has revealed about marriage, about the gift, the blessings of marriage, and how it is written into his plan, how marriage from the very beginning is a sign of something greater than itself. And in the New Covenant, it is a sign and also an instrument of that love. It is a sacrament. So that sign and instrumentation become elevated through Jesus Christ. And in marriage, in the New Covenant, we live, we can become, and we can effect or bring about the very reality which the sign points to, which is the love of God and our nuptial union with him. In the beginning, and Christ himself references this when he speaks to the Pharisees, after he asks them, what did Moses command you? They reply, Moses allowed us to draw up a writ of dismissal in cases of divorce. That's true, but that's only half of the truth, as we have pointed out. Then Jesus said to them, it was because you were so hard-hearted that he wrote this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, he, in reference to God, the Father, he made them male and female. Jesus is quoting what we're familiar with in the book of Genesis. He is quoting the word of God revealed in the very beginning. God created them male and female. This is why a man leaves his father and mother, and the two become one flesh. They are no longer two, therefore, but one flesh. God creates Adam, who is man. 
Adam, the first Adam, is a type of the fulfillment of man, the second Adam, who is Christ. Christ is sent from the Father. This is mysterious language. It speaks of the mystery of God and our share in this mystery, being created in God's image and likeness. Adam is created. Adam leaves his father and mother. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is sent by the Father. And he is sent, he becomes God incarnate, God made man. And just as in the beginning, from the rib of Adam, God creates woman, who is a type of bride, wife, church, spouse. All of this is pointing to the fulfillment in Christ of God creating woman, bride, spouse, church from the pierced heart of Christ on the cross. Water and blood flows forth from the heart of Christ. The cleansing water of baptism through which we are created, as in newly created, we become a new creation in God through baptism through the forgiveness of sins, through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are created and made new. We are cleansed of sin. It is by the blood of Christ that the bride is washed clean, as St. Paul says in chapter 5 of his letter to the Ephesians. He is speaking about one and the same mystery. What God reveals in the beginning is fulfilled in Christ. It is precisely the plan he has for us made in his image and likeness. Through the sign of marriage, therefore, God is speaking to us about this supreme dignity and this freedom and this destiny that we all have to be brides of God, being brides of Jesus Christ. It is a mystery of nuptial love. It is one and the same mystery which God has been speaking about from the beginning of creation, the book of Genesis. We encounter it immediately in the beginning of the Bible. He speaks of it all through the Bible, through his word, and he finishes speaking about it in Christ, where everything will come to its fulfillment and completion and its perfection, so that we are still speaking about the mystery at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. This is what the church says of this. Sacred scripture begins with the creation of man and woman in the image and likeness of God and concludes with a vision of the wedding feast of the Lamb. This is no accident because at the conclusion, the consummation of this marriage, we as brides of Christ will be in heaven at the wedding feast of the Lamb where that union with Christ will be consummated. We are church. We are bride. We enter into this nuptial covenant through baptism, which the church calls a nuptial bath. It's no accident that the signs surrounding the nuptial mystery always have the bride dressed in white. We put on the white garment of baptism. That's when we become a bride of Jesus Christ in baptism. And there is a certain way in which that union is consummated in the Eucharist. Whereas little brides, we go forward and we actually enter into intimate communion with Jesus Christ, our bridegroom. 
So first communicants, the girls, the little girls, for example, because they are sign of woman who is bride, wear the white dress. Brides in the sacrament of matrimony wear a white dress. But it is symbolic of something far deeper than merely a secular concept of it. It is written into the symbolic language of creation itself, which God has revealed to us. When do we put on that final white dress? Our own funeral, the funeral pall, the white funeral pall, which is draped over us. It is the dress, the garment of the resurrection to new life. Scripture speaks of how the saints in heaven, they are dressed in the white linen of the bride, the holy city of Jerusalem. The white linen is a sign of purity, of innocence, of not being corrupted, of being set apart for one bridegroom alone. The whiteness symbolizes all of these things. So, the church, in returning to our quotation, says that scripture begins with creation of man and woman in the image and likeness of God, and it concludes with the vision of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Scripture speaks throughout of the mystery of marriage, its institution as part of God's plan, the meaning God has given it, its origin and end, the difficulties arising from sin, because we cannot live marriage out easily all the time, comfortably all of the time, because we have a nature which is fallen. But as we discover in the New Covenant, by grace we can do this. I can do all things in him who strengthens me, as St. Paul says. So, marriage in the order of creation is a sign, and in Christ it is fulfilled, it becomes a perfected kind of sign, and also an instrument. Mutual love, therefore, between a man and a woman, becomes an image. It is an image of the absolute and unfailing love which God has for man. Because the bridegroom, there's really only one bridegroom, and he is Jesus Christ. When God reveals to us the mystery of marriage and all that is surrounding it, we must understand this, and we must get it right. We must learn to live what God has revealed. Because if we don't, we're going to fail to understand the greater mystery for which we are made. Not only will we fail to understand it, but we will not embrace it. We won't fulfill it. We won't enter fully into it. We end up rejecting it. So many people are confounded by the fact that the church cannot accept divorce as a possibility, as a reality, because God himself reveals that divorce has no part in his plan. But in fact, marriage is binding and irrevocable. It is permanent. It is indissoluble. What does Jesus Christ himself say? They are no longer two, therefore, but they are one flesh. It is a one flesh union, a one flesh covenant. So then, what God has united, human beings must not divide. God is the author of marriage. Marriage is not merely a civil or societal institution. It is that also. It has its natural aspect to it, but God is the author of it. And marriage has a supernatural aspect to it, especially for those who live through sacramental marriage, the life of grace. 
So man has inscribed into his humanity, the humanity of man and woman, the vocation, the capacity, the responsibility of love and the communion of persons. We are made by God, for God, to live in a communion of persons at the end of time, in eternity, to live in the communion of love. God has made a covenant with man. He has given his promise, his vow, as it were, and he will not revoke that. He will not rescind it. He will not change it or alter it. God does not break his covenant. It's very important for us to understand that God is love and that that is immutable and unchanging. The covenant of love must be permanent and indissoluble because it reflects the truth about God and the truth about us made by God and destined for him in eternity. So if we don't understand this tremendous mystery, then no wonder we think that divorce can enter into into the possibility of human relationships. God says, even when we are faithful, he is faithful still. He remains faithful because he continues to faithfully speak the truth about who he is, about this covenant. People tend to believe that violation of a covenant makes the covenant disappear, that it breaks it so that it no longer exists. This is a huge problem because, as we know, we are sinful man, and sin enters into the covenant, into the marriage covenant, creating great trial and hardship and struggle. But in regard to original sin, as the church teaches, the disorder that comes from this is not from the nature of man and woman, and it's not from the nature of their relation, but it's from sin. And so concupiscence and domination and lust and infidelity and all the other kinds of things that enter in militate against that. And in the Old Covenant, it was very difficult to remain married then. But in the New Covenant, we have the grace of Christ so that we can do this. When the apostles asked Jesus, when he talks about divorce, and then he goes on to talk about the need for us to be completely detached from ourselves and the riches and worries of the world. And the apostles say, well, Lord, who can be saved then? The demand of Christ, revelation of the law of God, overwhelms us. We begin to ask, as the apostles ask, then who can be saved? Who can do this? And as Jesus tells them, for man, it is impossible. But for God, all things are possible. We cannot obey the word of God apart from Jesus Christ. He is the vine and we are the branches. And when we drink from the sap of the vine, when we drink from the water of the vine, then we become strong and resilient and we can carry out the word of God. We need grace, therefore, to overcome the trial and hardship of married life. No one has a completely smooth and easy road to walk in the marriage covenant. It was this way in the Old Testament, it is this way in the New, and Jesus understands this. But when he makes of marriage a sacrament in the New Covenant, he is revealing that he is truly present in this sacrament as he is at the wedding feast of Cana. 
changing the water into wine, the wine of the kingdom, of the new kingdom. And speaking of this, the church says that Jesus' presence at the wedding feast of Cana is very important. The church attaches great importance to his presence at the wedding of Cana, the catechism says. She sees in it the confirmation of the goodness of marriage and the proclamation that thenceforth marriage will be an efficacious sign of Christ's presence. Archbishop Fulton Sheen, now deceased, wrote a book and spoke throughout his life about the fact that it takes three to get married. The man, the woman, and the person of Jesus Christ. That only in Christ do those marriages hold tightly together and can the man and woman endure all the hardship and trial and suffering and yes, sinfulness, their own and that of the spouse, that of the children, whatever. Can we endure and can we offer ourselves as a sacrifice and become a witness in the world to the nuptial love which God calls us to enter into and embrace. This is not an easy thing. It means going to the cross. This is why St. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, talks about Christ, the bridegroom, who sheds his blood. He sacrifices himself for her so that she might be made holy and blameless. Through the forgiveness of sins, the bride becomes holy. Now, there is a way in which all of us, men and women, husbands and wives, are brides of Jesus Christ by virtue of our baptism. So first, Christ has done this for all of us. We are all his brides. And now we must turn and do this for one another. By entering into marriage as a sacrament, when two baptized persons enter into marriage, it is a sacrament and it is irrevocable. It is permanently binding. It must be that sign to the world, and indeed, like Christ, it is a sign of contradiction for the world. But it must be that sign that speaks powerfully about something which is present in the marriage, even amidst the trials, hardships, and difficulties, but which is otherworldly, about a power which is present even in our weakness, to use the words of St. Paul. It leads people to Christ. It draws people to live the truth of Christ. It proclaims Christ to the world and proclaims the freedom and dignity of man and woman made in God's image and likeness. All of these things. But when we embrace a divorce mentality, we speak falsely about what God himself has revealed to us and the plan that he has in store for us. No wonder the world doesn't understand the great dignity and freedom of man and the tremendous destiny that we have to live with God in the communion of persons forever. No wonder the world doesn't understand it when we understand and reflect so poorly the nuptial love that God has revealed to us in his Son and made possible in his Son. Thanks for listening to Dr. George on Real Presence Radio. For more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. Up next, Dr. George will be continuing Christ's teaching on marriage and divorce. Then she will move into Docility to Revealed Truth.
Marriage must be therefore free. It must be faithful. It must be exclusive, and it must be fruitful. These are things which God has revealed about Himself, about who He is, and who we are in relationship to Him. Marriage must be these things. It must be free. We must freely enter into that covenant with God. God does not force us. He makes a promise. He establishes a covenant. But if you force someone to enter a covenant, then there is nothing binding there because we are free beings. This is why in marriages, sometimes years later, if a marriage tribunal in the church has to go back and discern and assess a marriage, one of the questions the church asks is. Were both the husband and wife in this case, both the man and the woman, free agents? Did they act freely? Were they free to consent? Because this is an essential part of the vow of the promise. God leaves us free, as we know. We can reject God. We have the freedom even to reject Him. We don't even have to accept the nuptial covenant that He offers us. We must be free. We say yes. I do. It's the I do of the bride of Christ. We say I do. So marriage must be free. Secondly, it must be faithful. God is faithful. Love is faithful. It is the character of love to be unchanging, to be immutable. Love doesn't change. God is love. God is eternal. He does not change. He does not change his mind. He doesn't change his plan. He doesn't change his will. Because he's perfect, there is nothing to be changed. Only the imperfect changes. The sign of this nuptial love, the sign of God's love. Therefore, if we're going to get this sign right, that sign, which is marriage, and that instrument, must be faithful. It is binding. Remember that God is the author of the sacrament of marriage. It is God Himself who seals that covenant. That's why Jesus says, "What God seals, what He binds together, we cannot divide. Man must not presume to divide, and it must be exclusive. There is a way in which love must be exclusive. God, speaking through the prophets, is always telling Israel that in His covenant with Israel, His bride." She is not exclusive. She is running after other lords, other gods, other Baals. She has all these other husbands, to use the language of the prophets. By saying this, he wants us to understand that there is a way in which our love for him must be exclusive. It must be unique and privileged. It must be a love to the exclusion of all other loves in the world. This is the material of our very next question, where Christ speaks of this detachment we must have from created things, ourselves and others, and the riches and things of the world. There is a way in which we must so exclusively and totally love God and be dedicated to Him that that love then sets in order all the other order that we have in our lives, what we call the ordered use of goods. The order that we have in family life, in married life, it's what Archbishop Fulton Sheen meant when he said that it takes three to get married. The couple that has Christ first and foremost, their marriage is based upon Christ. 
and Christ is the goal of their marriage, the fulfillment of Christ, the revelation of the Father's will, that couple's marriage and family life will be good and blessed and holy and ordered. Even when hardship or even sin enters in, they will be able to overcome it and to endure because their love for Christ is exclusive. So the earthly marriage covenant, in order to reflect the heavenly covenant, then must be free, the spouse is free, faithful, exclusive, and finally, fruitful. God is fruitful. He is the God of life. He is not a contraceptive God. Marriage is between one man and one woman. It is only one man and one woman who can be fruitful. Homosexual union is outside God's plan for marriage. There's not even a possibility for two men or two women to be naturally fruitful. God's plan ordains it that marriage be between one man and one woman and that they be open to the gift of life. Marriage has a two-fold purpose. It has a double meaning, a double value. It is unitive, speaking of love, the union of persons, the communion of persons, and it is also procreative. It is fruitful. This, too, the world struggles with. Even Christians, even Catholics in the Church, and the Church says that contraception is a grave wrong. It's a grave sin. Sometimes the world talks about artificial contraception, but in a sense, it's a redundancy. All contraception is artificial in a certain way. This is not the same as natural family planning. To live one's life according to the wisdom and order of God, that's in keeping with the laws of God. But contraception, in itself, the word means against life. That's what contraception is. God is not against life. He is life. He is the author of life. And he, in giving us this incredible dignity that we have, made in his image and likeness, he invites us to be co-collaborators with him in building his kingdom. God builds his church through man. What an incredible thing. Through human persons, his creatures, he builds up the kingdom of God. What is the church in heaven, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem? It is the family of saints, God's creatures. They are the children that God brings into the world through nuptial love. Love is fruitful. Love must be open to the gift of life. Finally, we must discern, we must look at the blessings and goods and truth of marriage and the meaning of marriage. And only then in understanding that can we begin to embrace it and we also begin to see just how far outside the plan of God divorce is. For this reason does the church say, Divorce is a grave offense against the natural law. It claims, claims to break the contract to which the spouses freely consented to live with each other until death. Remember, there are many people living in the world who say that they're divorced. They have gotten a civil divorce. That does not mean that they are divorced in the eyes of God. The final word 
on everything in our life is God's word. It's what God has to say about something. It's how God sees something. For this reason, baptized persons who are civilly divorced are not free to enter into another marriage union. Divorce does injury to the covenant of salvation, the church says. Why does it? Well, for one thing, it's not the instrument of God's love. And because it's a wrong sign, it's an erroneous sign. It's speaking a falsehood, a lie about who God is and who we are. Divorce does injury to the covenant of salvation, of which sacramental marriage is the sign. Contracting a new union, even if it is recognized by civil law, adds to the gravity of the rupture. The remarried spouse is then in a situation of public and permanent adultery. Now, these are hard words for many people. They're the words of the church, but I will tell you, they are exactly the words of Christ himself. They are exactly what God has been revealing from the beginning. If they are difficult words for us, it is in part because we don't want to embrace the truth that God has revealed. Jesus does not say that it's going to be easy. He says that the gate is narrow and the road is rough that leads to salvation. And he says few there are who find it. But with Christ's grace, we can endure all things and all things become possible to us through the strength and power of God. We receive sacramental grace in the sacraments, divine life. And it is through this divine life that we can live out this mystery and be a sign of it in the world. Indeed, there are many people living in difficult, struggling marriages where there's a lot of pain, a lot of hardship, where there are things that happen which seem insurmountable, things that are almost too difficult to get over. Sometimes people feel that they don't even live in a valid marriage. They never should have been married in the first place because there's something that's amiss from the start. In cases like these, because there is a process called annulment, it's not a subject that we will go into in this lesson, but in these cases, someone should seek the counsel of a holy priest and possibly from there decide what may be done and if it should be submitted to the judgment of the church. Annulment does not break a binding marriage covenant. When the church declares nullity, she is simply declaring that there was no valid marriage contract to begin with. It never existed. It wasn't there because certain necessary things, for example, maybe the freedom of one of the spouses, wasn't in place to start with. Therefore, they never could have entered into a valid marriage contract. That's what nullity is. It's not declaring a divorce. So we have to be careful with this language. But the important thing is to keep in mind that Christ gives the grace and strength to all of us to live out what God himself binds together in the first place. It is possible, not because of us, but because Christ is present at that wedding, blessing it and turning the water into wine, giving us the grace to be that sign and instrument in the world of nuptial love, of something which is divine. Authentic married love reflects divine love, in fact. Immediately following Jesus' teaching on divorce, 
we have an interesting event whereby some people bring little children to Jesus, and they ask Jesus to touch them, and the disciples scold them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he says, Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them. It is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. In truth, I tell you, anyone who does not welcome the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. It's no accident that St. Mark records this immediately after this very difficult teaching on marriage and divorce. We must become like little children to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling us this a matter of a few words after he has just told us this difficult teaching on marriage and divorce. And now he says, come to me as little children. And how are little children? They are simple. They are trusting. They are obedient. Their love goes out to meet love. They want to embrace the truth in a person when they find that truth. But there is a simplicity and there is also a willingness. Children, little children, actually have great willingness. They have great zeal and wanting to embrace. They can go out to something, actually enjoy, even when it's difficult at times. To welcome Jesus' word is to welcome the kingdom itself. The church teaches us in the catechism. The seed and beginning of the kingdom are the little flock, the little flock of which we are, because we are God's little children, of those whom Jesus came to gather around him, the flock whose shepherd he is. They form Jesus' true family, those who live his word, who embrace it and live it out, who are an example of it to the world. To those whom he gathers around him, he teaches a new way of acting. And whenever we encounter this new way, for some of us today, we are encountering something new in Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. Perhaps we have rejected it or murmured against it or complained against it in the past, like Israel in the desert. But once we encounter it, we have simply to make a choice in our will. We have to decide that we are going to be docile and obedient in our will. We have that power. Our will is the power to act or not to act. So what we must do is attune our intellect and our will, two powers of the soul. We have the intellect to be enlightened, to think, to know. And our will, the power to choose or to act, to embrace a way of life. As God reveals the pure of heart, the childlike, are those who have attuned their intellects and wills to the demands of God's holiness. As soon as we encounter something new in the gospel of Jesus Christ, all we need to do is be childlike and reconform, reconfigure ourselves by the grace of God to that new and higher standard, that higher standard of holiness. It's like, oh, I begin to see this. I begin to grasp this. If we sense our weakness, our poverty, we simply have to go to Christ and ask him to help us. Say, Lord, I'm in a difficult situation. What am I to do? Help me. I want to live my life in you. I want to be holy. I want to be a saint. And God will show us the way he will help us. We have to simply attune our will, our power. We have to be willing to be obedient and docile. And secondly, we must attune our intellect. This speaks of the formation of conscience that all of us are obligated to embrace throughout our lifetime. 
We begin this, of course, with the Word of God, divine revelation. We say to ourselves, what does divine revelation show me about the truth and love of God? We need to know what God has spoken in His Word, in His Son, Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of all the written Word, and the Word that the Church continues to proclaim throughout the ages to the end of time. This is divine revelation. That is why when we hear the church teaching and guiding us and enlightening us, it is Christ himself speaking, explaining this way to us. People sometimes say the church is very hard when it comes to her teaching on divorce. She cannot contravene the disposition of divine wisdom. She cannot do anything but, she is servant of the word, not master of it, she cannot do anything but proclaim, transmit, and safeguard the sacred deposit of our faith. That's all she can do. She is a servant of the word. She has a grave obligation to do this, and it is her joy to do this. She is protecting the nuptial mystery by refusing to allow divorce to become a possibility or reality. She is guarding the nuptial mystery, the plan of God for us from the beginning. Because by guarding it, we eventually, hopefully, will come to understand it and then begin to embrace it, or at least desire to embrace it. This is why the church says that filial respect is shown by true docility, being docile, and also through obedience. As scripture says, the Lord says, it's in the Proverbs, My son, keep your father's commandment. He is speaking of his father in his human family. But in regard to the church, this is our heavenly father. Keep your father's commandment. Forsake not your mother's teaching. The church is the voice of our holy mother on earth. The voice of Christ. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. When we awake into eternal life, the father and holy mother church will be conversing with us for all of eternity as God's son. What beautiful words we get in the Old Testament already speaking to their fulfillment at the end of time in the heavenly Jerusalem. Thanks for listening to Dr. George on Real Presence Radio. For more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering the following two topics. Detachment from the world, ourselves, and second, the necessity of fruitful lives. After Jesus' teaching on being childlike, we have several passages where he teaches on the need to be detached from riches and from worldly things. And again, this is difficult for the apostles to accept. Jesus says how hard it is for those who have riches. He's speaking not only of monetary wealth, any kinds of riches. We can have riches of health. We can have goods in life. We can have honors. We can have a great job. We can have fame. There are all sorts and forms of riches in life. And Jesus says how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Scripture records the disciples were astounded by these words, but Jesus insisted, my children, he said to him, he's calling them his children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. God is not revealing to us that created goods are bad or evil, but they must be used in their proper order. Again, our love for God must be first and foremost above all things, as Jesus himself reveals. Everything else will be set in place after that. 
our attachment to riches reveals our attitudes, the deeper attitudes of our heart. After all, it is in our heart, in the depths of our hearts, where we decide for or against God. In the depths of our heart, we cling to things sometimes. It's that clinging. It is that disordered attachment or inordinate attachment to these things that become obstacles to holiness, to purity. When God reveals to Solomon that he can ask him for whatever he wants, he doesn't ask for riches or honors or a long life or health of life or for the life of his enemies. No, what does Solomon ask for? He asks for wisdom and knowledge. And because of this, God is so pleased he gives him that and everything else along with it. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, to us, he says, Let the sage not boast of wisdom, nor the valiant of valor, nor the wealthy of riches. If anyone wants to boast, let him boast of this, of understanding and knowing me. If we know God, we love God. If we know his commandments, if we truly know God, we will keep his commandments. We will be attached to the vine. We will live from the vine and in the vine. And God will live in us. And then we will produce fruit in keeping with the kingdom. As scripture tells us, to see is to possess. To see God is to possess God. To truly see him, not just with our physical eyes, but to see with the eyes of our soul and to embrace. This is what it is to have wisdom, understanding, and knowledge of God to assimilate it into us and to live it out so that it informs us, that we become configured to it. As St. Paul says, because of the supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, I count everything else as loss. If I can only gain Christ and be found in him, St. Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, we can't help but remember Jesus' own parable of the merchant in search of pearls, and he finds the pearl of great price. And he goes and sells everything else he owns so that he can buy that pearl. Or the man in the field who finds a treasure, he puts it back and he goes off in his joy, Jesus says, sells everything he owns and buys the field. Because there he has everything. That treasure, that pearl of great price is Christ. And if we possess that, We possess all things. Everything else becomes secondary. We can use them. We can enjoy them. But everything is within the order of God. We encounter then in the second half of chapter 10, four consecutive events. They're actually interrelated, as question 2b points out. And what's interesting is it begins with the third prophecy of the Passion. Notice what St. Mark says. Now, we've just had this teaching on marriage and divorce. We've had this teaching on you must be like little children, you can't enter the kingdom. Now, we've had the teaching on riches, that you cannot be attached to them because it's so difficult for the rich man to get into heaven. Well, the apostles are swooning, practically. St. Mark says they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking on ahead of them. They were in a daze, he says, and those who followed were apprehensive. They sort of drop back behind Jesus. They're apprehensive there in a daze. It's like, what is this? What is it we have to do? Who is this we're following? They're dismayed. As we find ourselves sometimes when we discover exactly what Christ is telling us is the way to holiness, that he is the way. It says that Jesus takes them aside and he begins to tell them what is going to happen to them and he prophesies for the third time. 
that he must go up to Jerusalem and he must be crucified. He must suffer and die. What happens next is that some of the apostles, James and John, come to him and say, Master, we want us to do you a favor. Now, obviously, it hasn't all sunk into them, but it would be as if a father is sitting at a table with his children and he announces to them that he knows he will die soon. And a couple of the children say, Well, who's going to get your will then? And which part of your will do I have? And it's just like, didn't you just hear anything? The father is talking about his imminent death. He is speaking of the revelation of God's love, the salvation of man. And they start talking about what they're going to get out of this at the end. They're still not understanding what Jesus is saying. And Jesus, in his meekness and in his humility, says, What do you want me to do for you? They come and they want, want, want. He says, What do you want me to do for you? He says it just a few passages later to the blind man of Jericho. Everyone is going to Jesus, and we do the same thing day in and day out. We've got all of our concerns, all of our worries, our anxieties, our problems, and it's like we're waiting for Jesus to say, what do you want me to do for you? And in fact, this is exactly what God is saying to us in the Son every day. What do you want me to do for you? The blind man of Jericho says he wants sight. This is a good thing. It's good to want one's health one sight, to prosper, to have food to eat, clothes on one's back, a place to sleep. But there is so much more we could be asking for, the kingdom of God, and he will give us all other things besides. Our asking is so imperfect. It is so small in light of the mystery of Christ. He asks, what do you want me to do for you? He is also asking by way of example. He is putting on our hearts, in our minds, on our tongues, the very words that he wants us to speak by following his example after he is gone. What he does among the crowds, among his own apostles, by saying repeatedly, what do you want me to do for you? He wants this to be our attitude of service in the world. That's why he says, any one of you who wants to become great, you must become a servant. Anyone who wants to be first among you must be the slave to all. Jesus comes as a servant. He comes as a slave. He says, this must be our attitude. We must go into the world. We must go into our families. We must go into the workplace, among our friends. And the question on our lips must be the question on Jesus' lips. Here he is, days before the passion and death. And the question he repeatedly asks is, what do you want me to do for you? It's so amazing, that question, that he asks this in the midst of us. It's a teaching moment. He is showing us the question to be asked, but he is also giving us the answer in the question. The answer is the question. Because as soon as we speak as Jesus speaks and act as Jesus acts, we already have received the answer. When we say, what would you have me do for you, my Lord and my God? in service to your people. What would you have me do for you today? How do you want me to serve you, Lord, today, in the people I encounter, the people around me? In asking that question, we receive everything. We receive God, who is all. He will give all to his servants, to those who are slaves of Christ. This is why Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, 
You are my friends. Why? Because we know God the Father in Christ, the Son. When we know God, we possess God. As scripture says, to see is to possess. To know is to love. We know in a way which is to embrace, to be configured to. So by asking the question, we actually receive the answer that Christ himself points to. And then finally, the last question, the remaining one on the fig tree. They have gone up to Jerusalem. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. And scripture says that the next day as they were leaving, he felt hungry. Seeing a fig tree and leaf some distance away, Jesus went to see if he could find any fruit on it. But when he came up to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs, St. Mark tells us. And he addressed the fig tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say this. A few verses later, St. Mark records, The next morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered to the roots. Peter, dismayed, no doubt, Peter remembered. Very short sentence, St. Mark says, Peter remembered. Look, Rabbi, he said to Jesus, the fig tree you have cursed has withered away. Jesus answered, have faith in God. It's like amazing teaching moment. We're not expecting those to be the words that come from Jesus' mouth. He says, have faith in God. In truth, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be pulled up and thrown into the sea with no doubt in his heart, but believing that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. I tell you, therefore, everything you ask and pray for, believe that you have it already, and it will be yours. The fig tree is an object lesson. As Jesus says a few chapters later, learn a lesson from the fig tree. There are several lessons here. The first is that God asks fruit from the fig tree. The fig tree has no fruit. But God does not ask something of his created order that he himself does not supply. When God asks something and expects fruit, the fruit needs to be there. In other words, that fig tree has not done its job. It hasn't produced the fruit that God has asked of it. God expects us to bear fruit, not only in the natural realm, but in the supernatural realm because by grace, we become divinized, supernaturalized. We are attached to the vine. We must bear fruit. In keeping with this, we drink from the vine who is Christ. And so, we should be able to produce fruit in season and out of season. It's something which God has been speaking to us about from throughout the Old Testament and into the New. This is why in the heavenly Jerusalem, in fulfillment of the words spoken by the prophet Ezekiel, that in the heavenly Jerusalem there is a river that runs through it, and there are trees on both sides that bear fruit 12 months of the year, and their leaves are medicinal. As St. John says in the book of Revelation, their leaves are the cure of the nations. The prophet Ezekiel says that the water flows through it. It's the water of life because it comes from the sanctuary. It comes from Christ. So there is a way in which we are destined to be the fulfillment of this. We must produce fruit. When Christ is hungry, he is hungry, scripture says. He hungers for souls. He hungers in his mission to save the world. And we share in that hunger. But when Christ reaches out for fruit in his hunger, he expects to find it there. And when it is not there, 
it is no fault on the part of God because God does not ask what he himself does not will and also fulfill. Peter is amazed because Christ speaks his word and instantly it happens. The tree withers to its very roots and he's almost taken aback. He encounters the power of the word of God in this moment. And Christ goes on to teach about the power of prayer attached to prayed in Christ, prayed in the vine, connected to the vine. It teaches us about filial boldness, so that, as Christ says, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have already received it, and it will be given to you. This is difficult for us to pray with this kind of faith. It requires a childlikeness. It requires something that the church speaks of in the section on prayer in the Catechism, which is called parisia, and it is the Spirit of God whereby in one movement of the soul, we speak with a boldness and yet also a humility, one and together. In fact, the word, the Greek word parisia, means to speak very candidly or frankly on the one hand, but at the same time to sort of ask for forgiveness for speaking so candidly or so frankly, as if to say, if I may be so bold as to say, or forgive me for saying, but then we go on to say it. It is, as the church describes, a straightforward simplicity, a filial trust, joyous assurance, humble boldness, and the certainty of being loved. This absolute certainty as a child of the Father, that whatever he asks, he will fix, he will take care of, he will supply for. So we have a great liberty, as the saints have in talking to God, but also reverence and modesty. We have a boldness, a confidence, and at the same time, we have humility. We have a very deep yearning, an asking, a petitioning, and at the same time, a very deep trust. It is the way a child speaks to a father that he or she knows is perfectly loving. And if the child lacks, she knows or he knows that the father will simply supply for everything will put into her hands whatever she needs or whatever she does not have. St. Teresa Lisieux, in speaking of how at the end of times when she would go into eternity, she knew that she would go with empty hands, she says. She speaks to God and says, I will come before you with empty hands because all that I merit is as nothing in your eyes. She asked that God would place into her hands his goods, his graces. She preferred to go into eternity with her hands empty because she wanted God alone to fill them. So childlike, so loving, so trustful, so confident was that prayer. And God, in fact, has filled her hands. As we know, she is the saint through which roses are poured out upon the world through the saint's intercession. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Please tune in next time while Dr. George continues in the Gospel of St. Mark with the following five topics. The parable of the wicked tenants. Second, paying tribute to Caesar. Third, marriage after the resurrection. Fourth, the widow's might. And finally, the false prophets of the end times. For further information please visit us online at sacredheartproductions.org.